Hi folks, on this episode of Gender Blender, I speak to the social media star and filmmaker Pigeon about their new documentary, the relationship between intersex folks and the medical industrial complex, how intersex people relate to the queer and trans community, and so much more. Dr. Carrie Costello also joins us from Yuma, Milwaukee for some awesome clarification points. So let's go. Gender Blender. Blender Gender. Gender Blender. Gender Blender. Gender 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 Blender. My name is Pigeon. I use they them pronouns and I would describe my gender as gender lazy. Yeah. <laughs> what does that what does that mean to you? It means I don't care about my gender. I have no attachment to my gender or any gender. I would say like if I had to pick one it would be non-binary. But I think I have this problem where I don't like to pick things that are already exist. So I'm just like on a I'm like on a casual dating relationship with non-binary identity mm. until I find something better. Mm-hmm. And right now I've heard someone describe their gender as gender lazy. And I was like, a light bulb popped off and I was like, that's me. I'm so lazy about my gender. Like I don't put too much time or energy into it or thinking about it. I feel like I'm the opposite. And yet I think about gender all the time, but not necessarily mine, mm-hmm. but how gender operates and why things happen because of gender and how effed up stuff can be because of gender and the binaries that gender inhabit. You can swear, by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah. But I mean, that's interesting because gender operates on like several different levels. There's like your internal gender and the way that you experience gender. And then there's also the fact that people are going to perceive you as a certain gender. Yeah. Then there's gender roles and society, you know, yeah. Yeah. There's so much to it. And I love thinking about it, but I'm like with my own gender, I'm I've never like really, yeah, it's it's interesting. I'm starting to think about it more le- lately. I think because my body's changing. And so for the first time, I'm like, like what are these? Are these this is what people call hips. And then I'm like, <laughs> do I want these things? And then like, are my boobs getting bigger? What the fuck? I'm like 31. And I'm like, I don't want them bigger. And or do I? So things like that are making me think about my gender, just more how people perceive me thinking about my body and what my body represents. Like the the control that you don't have over your body's presentation Mm -hmm. and what that means. Do you also identify as trans or no? No. Okay. This is, I'm going to really mess this up, but me and some people interviewed an intersex person that's also trans and their name is Dr. Carrie Costello. They're a professor at UW-Milwaukee and they're amazing. And so they were saying that as an intersex person, if you say you're cisgender, it actually doesn't have the same meaning. Um, oh man, I can't even give this justice. But um, basically, like, what does it mean to be cis when you're intersex? Mm-hmm. And what does it mean to be trans when you're intersex? And they were using this other language that you should really interview them about. Ipsa? Ipsum? Ipsa gender? It's like... I can't even pretend to explain it, but it's just like this term and it was beautiful. And it really made sense for me as an intersex person because if I say I'm cis or not cis, it has different connotations than for other people because of who I am, which is like an intersex person with a specific intersex variation with specific chromosomes, etc. And then what I was designated at birth and then what I choose to be, not choose to be, but just like who I am today now that I've recognized that I'm intersex, 
Okay, so I actually got the person Pigeon is talking about, Dr. Carrie Costello, on the phone to talk about the language that Z created to differentiate between trans people who aren't intersex, trans people who are intersex, and intersex people who aren't trans. Carrie told me about the terms endosex and ipsogender. Endosex is a person who is not intersex. So we've got endosex and intersex. Endosex and intersex are the but, but terms for bodies. Now, when it comes to talking about gender identity and people on trans spectrum, mm-hmm. the problem is the term cisgender, because a cisgender person is supposed to be a person who identifies with their bodily sex. So their sex and gender match. Right. Right. And so when we speak of cis privilege, we're talking about somebody being able to walk around in the body that they have and have people respond to them appropriately in accord with their gender identity. Right. Yes. Okay. The thing is, if you are an intersex person and Mm -hmm. you were whatever binary sex you were assigned at birth, it is not your birth sex. (laughs) So in effect, what happens to us in infancy is that we go through a gender change plus or minus a sex change. Um, depending on whether or not we're identified at birth and we have surgery. We go through a transition experience, not one that we asked for. But we're born of an intermediate gender and then we're assigned to a binary sex. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of like being transgender. However, it's really weird to call somebody transgender if they identify with the sex that was put on their birth certificate. And their whole life, they have had the same one and they didn't have to go through all those legal steps and, and their documents match and all of that. So what we really need is a term for a person who is born intersex and identifies with the binary gender they were assigned at birth. And that's why I use ipsogender. Ipso is one of those scientific prefixes, and it means a substitution in the same place. <laughs> Did you make so that it's useful. up? No, it's a real, it's, a, it's an actual, no, I, actual I'm not... chemistry. Oh, the term? Yeah. I made up the term, but ipso is, a, is, a, is, is used like in chemistry and stuff to yeah. talk about isomers. No, I meant like, did you make up the term ipso gender? I did make up the term That's ipso super gender. cool. It's excellent. <laughs> um, because we need a word. And I, the people in the intersex community have been a lot of people who are themselves ipso gender. They mm-hmm. identify with the binary sex they were assigned at birth. Mm-hmm. They get really pissed off at the trans community because cis trans language does not apply well to them. And um, they feel like they're being misunderstood when right. they're called like cis people and you have cis privilege. And how do you have cis? How do you have a privilege when like people have already cut into your genitalia and every time you go to the doctor, they're like, they're, we have to stare at you because your sex is wrong. Right. Um, that cis doesn't apply well, but calling somebody trans when they don't, when they are identifying with their birth assigned sex also feels really creepy to people. They're, they're like, you are undermining and not accepting the reality of my gender identity. Right. So that is why a third term really is needed to step out of the thing that makes intersex people get peeved at trans people and their advocacy. Now that we've been schooled, let's go back to my conversation with Pigeon, who has a different way of relating to the word trans than Carrie does. So anyways, to answer your question, I don't identify as trans because I've never had a moment where I've said, oh, I'm trans. Like, I'm, I'm going to transition over to something else or transition to a- another thing. 
I've just kind of always felt like I've been myself and I've had other labels or yeah, pretty much other labels attached to mm-hmm. me. And I've tried them on like clothes throughout life because mm-hmm. I didn't know any better. And then when I found out, I just started identifying as purely intersex instead of female or male. And then with my gender identity, that's kind of been like gender queer, gender nonconforming or non-binary or now gender lazy. <laughs> so I've never really had the need to or desire to identify as trans or to change anything. But like I said, lately, I've started to understand a little bit about body dysmorphia. Dysphoria. Dysphoria? Yeah, dis- people with eating disorders oh. will have body dysmorphia. Okay, sorry, dysphoria. Body dysphoria. Because I've just been like, oh, like I just like don't understand my body. And it's like slight changes. It's like, like I said, like a little bit of hips or something. And I was just like, because I think I've had a very like sort of androgynous body my whole life, except for like the little breast that grew that grew because of the, um, the pills they put me on when I was 12. They put me on estrogen. Other than that, it's been pretty androgynous. So like when it's anything but androgynous i'm like oh my god what's happening (laughs) like are you is your body changing because you're on different hormones i think and i I think it's part of getting older so i'm 31 i have changed hormones and this is sort of around the time that my body started changing i supposedly didn't really change the dose too much i just changed like the type of hormones so i went from like one pill that had estrogen and testosterone in it together to two pills, one is estrogen and one is testosterone. Mm-hmm. And the first pill gave me like really bad reaction. Like it um, made my tongue swell up and get sores and dry and like it was horrible. But then it got better. And then um, the testosterone, yeah, I don't know. You would, I would think, yeah, I don't know. My body's so interesting. And also it might not, I might just be getting like, gaining a little bit of weight, which maybe that's just it. So maybe it has not, Maybe it doesn't have anything to do with the hormones. But I think where the weight goes is a result of what hormones I'm on mm-hmm. and how much estrogen I'm on, which is what I've learned from like the trans community. It's like your weight dis- your weight distributes differently based on what hormones you're on. And that's it's kind of just cool that our bodies can like change where they stores its fat and stuff. Hormones are powerful. <laughs> yeah. I read this piece, I think it was by Julia Serrano, where she was like Trans people render gender absurd because within a few months of getting a hormone prescription, you can just start, quote unquote, passing as a completely different gender. Just with like, just with hormones. That blows my mind because people think like it's so rigid and it's so stuck. But like you take a low dose of estrogen and then like everything can change or a low dose of testosterone. And people will just believe that you are the gender they believe you are just by whatever they think you are, by looking at like a few signifiers on your body. Mm -hmm. The Serrano article I was talking about is actually called Skirt Chasers, Why the Media Depicts the Trans Revolution in Lipstick and Heels. And I'll link it in the episode description so you can check it out. So you just premiered a documentary called The Sun I Never Had. In that documentary, you begin to tell your story of growing up intersex. Mm-hmm. And you tell that story by going through your medical records and by incorporating conversations with your parents and through your own voiceovers. Also in the documentary, you include footage of Dr. John Money. Yes. Who's a psychologist and a sexologist who practice medicine based on the belief that 
gender is formed by the way that you raise a child. Yes. And I'm wondering if you want to talk about the way that, you know, like that's influenced other physicians and how that has impacted the lives of intersex folks today. John Money was a sexologist, as you said, from New Zealand, of all places, and studied and got his fame and notoriety at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. He kind of became famous for a case with the Reimer twins. Mm -hmm. And what happened was two boys were born. One had a botched circumcision. The parents were told to bring the children to John Money. They heard he could do great things about gender. And John Money was presented with this perfect study. And he saw a control and a, what's it called in science? Control and a, you know, you have like a control and a test subject. Mm. So the control was the child that didn't have the botched circumcision. He told the parents to raise, continue raising that child as male. And the child who did have a botched circumcision was the test subject in his experiment. John Money told the parents, raise that, this child as a, as, a, as, a, as a girl and to help you in that process, we'll do a surgery. So the surgery was inverting the penis that was botched into a vaginoplasty type surgery and change their name to something feminine and never tell them this happened, put dresses on them, et cetera, et cetera. And John Money wrote about this as a wild success in his, in his, I don't know, his memoirs, no, his um, medical journals. And he even did audio recordings where he was just like, this is going great. This case is wonderful. And so anything he tended to write about gender or sex and, and raising children was respected. So he also then started to kind of shape the way intersex people and to a degree uh, trans medicine was formulated. And he really had this strong, strong, strong belief that a child's genitalia had to match their assigned sex or gender. And if it didn't, you should do surgery before the age of two to correct and to make that genitalia match whatever they had decided the gender was. He didn't not believe that intersex people were real and didn't that they didn't exist. He just thought it was best that they were forced into one or the other of the male or female binary box with cosmetic genital surgery and hormone prescriptions and lies and secrecy. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of us, intersex people after the 1950s, which is when like this happened with the Reamers, were subjected to the money, to John Money's protocol. And that protocol was do surgery as soon as possible to make the child clearly male or female. And generally he would make us into females because he's famous for saying it's easier to dig a hole than build a pole, referring to typical I'm, male and female genitalia. I'm shaking my head right now. Have you heard that before? I have never heard oh, that. Oh, yes. Yeah. So that's a huge thing that really kind of overarches all of our surgeries because, well, a lot of men don't really, were doing the surgeries and didn't have the medical technology to build fully functioning penises that they thought were up to par for their standards as men, as these male surgeons were doing. So they were like, well, it's easier to dig a hole. And they didn't really see the significance mm -hmm. of a clitoris anyway. So so they would just kind of get rid of the, the, the clitoris and the clitoral tissue or the phallic tissue. 
and then sort of invert anything that was there into a vagina. And not 80 or 90%, I've heard it say, uh, intersex kids were raised female. So yeah, John Money had a devastating effect on a lot of us. But I mean, if he hadn't, somebody would have done this. Mm -hmm. And I think the binary is so strong that once medicine caught up with having anesthesia and cosme and uh, plastic surgery techniques for things like this, and, and it, it should be said that some people wanted these surgeries. They wanted gender-affirming surgeries, and that, they, that should be their right to have them as long as it's what they want. But mm -hmm. with intersex kids, it was kind of hush-hush, done in secrecy, and it was told to parents to keep it a secret and to never tell the child as they grew up. And this was really believed to be the best protocol to help us as we grew up because it was seen as detrimental if we knew about our intersex diagnosis. So instead, just they would render us a normal male or normal female, usually a normal female, quote unquote normal and quote unquote female. And then they thought we were just gonna go on and live these happy lives and never get upset, but the Reamers, the, the Reamer child who that happened to, he got very upset when he found out the truth and he called out his doctor, John Money. And then he ended up committing suicide in his 30s, I believe, or late 20s. And a lot of intersex people separately in the 90s started growing up and realizing what happened to them by seeing pictures of themselves in medical textbooks naked and realizing that's me. Oh my God, that's when I was a child, that's when I was a teenager. And they remember John Money or they remember his colleagues doing things to them or and things like that. And so they would have these flashbacks and these memories and some of them got their medical records and some didn't. But the ones who did were able to get some type of written, uh, not proof, but some type of written confirmation confirmation of of the fact that they were born intersex and that they had a lot of surgeries done to them. And those surgeries left them with a lot of scar tissue, pain, insensitivity, unnecessary trauma, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of what the hashtag intersex stories, not surgeries, is about is advocating for consensual surgeries and advocating against non-consensual surgeries. But I also found it bizarre how informed consent was defined by the people that wrote your medical records in <laughs> your documentary. Because there's that one part of the documentary where you're getting ready for surgery, you're 12 years old, and someone comes in and asks if you would like a surgery to make it so that you could have sex with your husband when you're yeah. older. And then you say, like, you you didn't know what to say, so you let out a shameful yes. And then in the medical records, it says that they obtained yeah. informed consent. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's really, really messed up. Informed consent as defined by... I can't remember who, if it's the American Medical Association or somebody, somebody cool. I don't know if they're cool, but somebody out there. Some authority. Some authority in the medical world, yeah. yes, is that um, the crux of informed consent is that it's an ongoing process. It's not an event. It's something that you have to continually check in with parents and the, and the patient, and you have to give them all sides of the argument and all, and all resources possible, and you have to keep doing this. You can't just do it once and then like walk away and think they have informed consent. And so in my case and in my medical records, they actually said that I was, I came in asking for genital surgery when I was 11 and that I wanted vaginoplasty. And I didn't even know what that word meant back then. And I 
didn't know when I was 19 either, actually, when I found my medical records. But yeah, so they, what they did say to me was, actually they lied and they told me I had a, a urethra bladder problem and that they were gonna go in and fix that. And when right before I was prepped for that surgery, they said, oh, we also noticed your vagina is a little bit smaller than other people. And, you know, we figured while we're in there working on your bladder and your urethra, we can make it a little bit bigger. And that way you could have normal sex with your husband when you're older. And is that something, you know, you want? And I said, yes, because at 11 years old, I wanted to be, I wanted a chance at being normal, which is how they presented it. And I wanted a chance at getting married and having normal sex with my husband. They never told me I was intersex. They never told me they were giving me a full out vaginoplasty. They didn't tell me they were gonna do more work or work on my clitoris that because they did the first clitoris the clitoris surgery when I was three or four I mean and so I guess it was still too big even though whatever and then they took more they did more to it when I was 11 um I found in my medical records they didn't mention that at all to me so it was not I didn't get informed consent Mm -hmm. my parents didn't really have informed consent they were kind of presented with this false narrative that I would get cancer if they didn't allow the surgeons to do what they wanted to do, I would get gonadal cancer and that I would die at a certain age, just like in my teens, I'd most likely die of cancer. And the other things they were just like, your child needs this to have a normal existence <laughs> or they'll like hate themselves and they'll wanna commit suicide. And so you should just let us do these like corrective normalizing surgeries to make your, your girl a, a, a normal girl. And so my parents kind of, bowed down to the authority of the medical people in my life. Why do you feel like it's important to tell your story? Like what drove you to make that documentary? Hmm. I think there's a lot of reasons. I could just talk about how I made it, like the process of coming to make it. And maybe my reason is in that. I was in grad school and I had to do a thesis and I could do a creative option. And I was going to first write a book. I met up with a writing instructor. She told me about this book called Girl Interrupted. Mm -hmm. And the format was the author would put a medical record, a real medical record from her stay in the mental hospital. And then she would pair that medical record in the chapter with her own subjective experience of that story that was written down in the medical record Mm -hmm. or that event. And so you have the contrast of the subjective storyteller and then the objective medical voice, which was on the like beginning of each chapter. Mm -hmm. And so I decided I would like to do the same and and use my medical records, which really have this austere medi- biomedical, like authoritative voice in them, and don't really give anybody reading like any sense of who I am or my family was in those moments. Mm-hmm. And so I started to look at, I had hard drives from the past. I had all these audio notes on my phone and also just like files on my computer from before iPhones that were QuickTime recordings of like cell phone conversations I would have with people on speakerphone and I would record it straight into my computer. 
And I found a conversation between my mother and I, and it was about 19. I had just discovered or found out that I was intersex. And I had just called my mother and confirmed with her what I what my intersex variation was. And I hung up the phone and then I like threw my phone at the wall and it broke. And so we were not talking, but then eventually we did talk. And I think that that's the conversation. And it's like my mother just basically saying, we can't go on like this anymore, us not talking. We need to talk about this. She's kind of releasing a lot of pain and guilt and shame in that conversation for what her role was in the surgeries that happened to me because I was intersex. So once I started to transcribe that conversation, I started shaking and crying and just listening to that time in my life. Like that was years before. And it was just after I found out I was intersex and it was a horrible time in my life. And this conversation with my mom, which was like heart wrenching. And then I was just sitting with headphones, listening to it. And I started crying and I, and, and I just like, I can't do this. So I put down the project for like six months and I didn't know what to do. And I think, I don't know, I just went back to it and mm -hmm. realized, at the, yeah. At the beginning of the documentary or the film, mm -hmm. you do say like, I've tried to start this so many times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, why was it so hard to start? I think part of it is opening up a part of your life that is very hard. It's like one thing to go into public and say, I'm intersex or share your story or teach people about what intersex means. It's another thing to like struggle with your mom and your dad who not willingly, but participated in the horrible things that happened to me. And to hear their pain and their shame and their struggle, and then to have these moments with them and then to share them, to share all of our stories in a way, it's just very hard. I think there's a lot of things I was ashamed of right off the bat. It's like when I found that I was, when I found my medical records and found out that they did a clitorectomy, a vaginoplasty, and a gonadectomy, I think I just had a lot of shame about those things. I think, I think um, be, being part of like a lesbian relationship or a queer relationship with a woman, a person who identified as a woman, it always brought me shame that like I didn't have the body that they had. So I've always had shame about my body. And I think delving into my medical records and delving into those conversations with my parents that were hard and then sharing them was just hard to mm -hmm. begin. Mm -hmm. And which is why, which is why I tried so many times to start a project like that. And I, I did, I, I have these little starts that started when I started like school as a film major and they just never went anywhere. And then I tried to write it and that never went anywhere. And then eventually it came to be the, the documentary that it is today. How do you see things like race and class intersecting with intersex experiences? Yeah, I think if you look at the history of the medical industrial complex, 
you always see the ways in which it intersects very differently with people of color and people who don't have, um, who aren't uh, like rich people, basically like not upper class people. And then when you mix in intersects to that intersection, people are going to be affected differently. My intersex brother, Saifa, taught me about someone named Anarka, who was a, an enslaved woman in the U.S. This doctor named Dr. J. Marion Sims used her and some other enslaved women without anesthesia or proper anesthesia to then formulate his surgical techniques to, to fix fistulas and he would practice these surgeries on them over and over and over again. So they're these women of color with no class standing other than slaves in this country. And they were seen as property and they were seen as like, oh, we could use them to experiment on them to create a cure for white women that have reproductive issues like fistulas. And I think it's important to like bring those stories up or like stories of Tuskegee where black people in the South, poor people were used as guinea pigs in like a government-sponsored... Is that the syphilis? Yeah, Tuskegee syphilis yeah. Um, experiment. Yeah, when they like infected people with syphilis to see how it progressed. Yes. And it was like mostly black men. It was black men in the South. They lied to them for decades. And then you look at women of color in like the South who were routinely... Um, what's it called when they take away your reproductive abilities? Sterilized. Sterilized in, right. in Puerto Rican women and Native women and... So then you hit intersex people, which we're, we've been around forever, but the medicalization of us, the pathologization of us, the way it's done now is very recent. It's mm -hmm. only since the 1950s. And I can't say for sure because there's not evidence or not evidence, there's not data. We don't have like tons of data on this, but I can guarantee that if you're a black or brown woman, or say you are an indigenous woman or you're a person that wasn't born in this in this country and you come up in this medical system that that honestly has no space for you unless you have ins medical insurance and you have a lot of money and you can speak English perfectly, et cetera, et cetera. So I think you have to use an intersectional analysis that factors in race and class when talking about intersex people's experiences. And I think on the flip side of that coin, there's also some positive things that happen if you're a woman of color in this country sometimes. So say you can't afford to go to a hospital or it just wasn't in your culture or like your way of doing things and you kind of had home birth and you had a um, doula that's from your community. And this doula, because I've met some people like this, this doula saw the baby had intersex genitalia at birth and the doula was like, through ancestral knowledge was like, it's okay. This baby mm -hmm. should be loved and reared in a in a way to, and seen as like a blessing instead of rushed off to the hospital and then the hospital doing a bunch of tests and then doing surgery to quote unquote correct them. So you see like the benefits of of race and class sometimes for like intersex people of being forgotten by the medical industrial complex. And then there's also the real like negative. So like it's more rare, but like some intersex people need certain medications to to live. There's CAH, which is a medical, uh, an intersex variation. It stands for congenital adrenal hyperplasia. And there's a percentage of people with CAH that have a salt wasting condition and their body doesn't regulate salt properly. And they need to take a medication that helps their body remove the uh, salt from their body. So anyways, if you don't have access to medical care because of race or because of class or the stereotypes and the, the stigma associated with your race and your class, 
or say you just can't speak English and they don't have an interpreter and no one can tell you what's going on, then race and class has a negative effect on your child or your intersex experience, mm -hmm. let alone the racism that just happens in medical encounters. So again, the flip side is like, there's also ancestral knowledge that a lot of folks of color, especially black folks and brown folks, have a distrust of the medical industrial complex because of things like Tuskegee, because of things like mass sterilization. And so there might be this <laughs> bonus effect that when you don't go to the doctor a lot or the hospital, you might be saving your child from like horrible intersex surgeries. People of color and people of working class backgrounds know how to survive and they have to survive. And they have this knowledge from their community, from their families, from themselves, just growing up that sometimes can work out in our favor when you're an intersex person of color that's not upper class. So I think it, it factors in a lot. And I think, unfortunately, since the early 90s, the intersex movement has appeared very white. Mm -hmm. And so that hasn't really changed much. It, it is changing. Me and Saifa and Linnell and Alice Alvarez and Amanda Sains and Jonathan in uh, Washington and Julius Kagwa in Uganda and Hiker Chu in Taiwan and they're small in, chi in China or Hong Kong, I should say. There's tons of people, of intersex people of color around the world doing work now, but it's still, if we're looking in the U.S., it's kind of dominated by white people and white faces. Two weekends ago, I was at an intersex support group and conference, which is like one of the biggest annual meetups for intersex people. And there was a black family with four children. Three of them had an intersex variation. And... We were talking, and it was her first conference, a lot of white people there. She said to her mom, is intersex, is this like a white disease only? And it's funny, it's it's not a disease, but that, that was her words, and I understand what she meant. But um, I was trying to tell her no, but like the way that race and class affects people means that they can't get to this conference. Mm -hmm. It's cost $250 to register, then you gotta pay for your airfare, then you gotta pay for the hotel, then you gotta pay for time off work or get time off work, and then you gotta have your children with you and all their airfare and all their hotel. But I just want you to know it's not a white thing only, and I'm so glad you're here. And, and Linnell, my big sis, who's um, in Chicago too, you know, I'm like, she's here too, and, and she's glad you're here, and, I'm, and she's a black intersex person, and so, she was like, yeah, I was so relieved when I saw her. And Linnell was just telling me yesterday, she was so relieved when she saw another black family there because it's so rare in like, at least the intersex traditional like organizing spaces and they're not even that much organizing, more like support spaces and organizing some way. It just tends to be like a lot of white people. But that's how race and class, I think, intersect with intersex. As someone who's very much in the media, as like an intersex person, I wanted to talk about the complexity of visibility. I get frustrated with visibility a lot. Like I think at first it was a goal. It was like, there's not a lot of visibility. I will do that. I would love to do that. Um, right. And then, sorry, my other yeah, qualm go, please with do. visibility is like, it assumes that if people know, they will change. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay, good. I'm glad you said that. So for me, visibility is never like the end goal anymore. As we see, like I, this is the example I always use, is that there's there's visibility for black folks. You know, black folks are on TV, they're in the media, but mm -hmm. almost every day, the way that society chooses not to view black folks as human is put on display in the media as well when we see police and other just white terrorists killing black people 
time and time again, which is why we see the Black Lives Matter movement and other movements spring up, or why we've seen those movements spring up. So for me, I, I use that as an example to say, visibility is one part of the equation, but visibility doesn't mean that people are understanding or gonna change their ways, but they might just consume you. They might consume, white people love to consume black culture, black celebrities, black athletes, black entertainers, entertainment forever, even during Jim Crow. But that didn't mean that they weren't then segregating themselves or being racist or supporting um, the white supremacist project, which is this country. So the same thing with intersex, just because we get a character developed with MTV on a TV show, or I'm in a TV show for a few minutes, or um, I'm in the media, or someone's in the media that's intersex, just because we're getting media now, Look at trans people. They get tons of, me not tons, but they get a lot more media representation. But at the same time, we still see a lot of trans women of color being murdered as well. And that's, again, speaking to how race and class intersects, intersect with people's identities. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's so hard to talk about intersectionality and intersexuality and intersex, yeah. at the same yeah. time. <laughs> and it's just like, uh, and everyone just wants to name everything intersectionality, like they do a pun on that. I'm like, stop. Um, but yes, yeah, so I think like, so I have also, I have a, okay, let's just go to me. I have a YouTube channel. I have an Instagram page. I have a Twitter. I have a Facebook. I have a non-functioning Snapchat. I have a documentary. I'm in other documentaries. I'm in a new documentary that I'm trying to put out right now. I make myself very consumable. I think I hit like a, a threshold or a wall where I was like, I don't feel like I can actually be myself in any of these avenues. I, I realize like, what does this audience want? And then I try to give them that. So for Instagram, I try to give them intersex posts or intersex related mm -hmm. posts. For YouTube, same thing. But I was realizing that I felt like I couldn't really share, like if I had like a, a different thought about something else or whatever. And so I started to see the limits of exposure or what was the word you used? Visibility. Visibility. And, and still after all these years of intersex have been, intersex people have been visible since the early 90s. And non-consensual surgeries continue have to happen. Not continue to happen. And yes, and they've morphed, right? So the other, the opposition has come up with more creative ways of, of discounting us and saying we're just a loud minority and there's a happy majority out there that's happy with these surgeries. I think, like you've said, visibility doesn't really always change anything, but I do think it's part of the picture. I do think, I do know people who thank me or thank others who are intersex and out for the visibility because it's given them courage or strength to do something in their life that mm -hmm. they weren't able to do that they weren't able to do before they saw someone like them speak out in public so i do know it's important but like you said i don't think it's the end goal i don't think it changes like everything i think power speaks to power and you really have to work in coalition with other groups that are powerful or that have either power like political power money power or they have coalitional or people power and you have to work with all those groups to then get to that tipping point to stop doing non-consensual medically unnecessary intersex surgeries on people um, and respect intersex bodily autonomy so you wrote an article for everyday feminism it was called seven ways adding the i to the lgbtqa plus acronym misses the point <laughs> what go ahead what all these articles got me in so much like trouble oh that's really interesting <laughs> I, I would be interested in hearing what kind of trouble you got in if you want to talk about it 
with the LGBTQI question, there's a lot of people at the time asking, like, should we add the I, or they're just adding the I to LGBTQ. And at the time, I was very sort of ambivalent about that. I saw the mainstream LGBT movement as very, like, focused on the wrong issues. Mm -hmm. I wanted to question the, the, the rush to join an assimilationist movement. Mm -hmm. Even though the LGBTQ movement also has like radical divergences in its past and contingencies, and there's people who were radical and are radical within that umbrella. But um, the mainstream and what it has become, I was turned off by. I go back and forth on this question a lot. And lately I've realized that the reason that the I can be added to the LGBTQ acronym is because most people in that umbrella generally face discrimination based on gender gender oppression. And so there's that common root. And I think I also questioned it because not all intersex people identify as LGBT or Q. Mm -hmm. So there was just like that basic thing. It was like, what about the fact that like most intersex people are straight identified, <laughs> or at least a lot of them are. But then when I realized that like we all experience gender-based oppression and that's where a lot of our problems come from, I was like, okay, cool. Then we can, then like, I'm starting to understand it more why we can join the LGBTQ movement. Carrie also had some really interesting things to say about how intersex people and in particular trans people can work together. So let's listen in on that conversation for a minute. How do you see trans people and intersex people debunking what you've called the ideology of natural sex? Okay, well, intersex and trans people by our very existence undermine this belief system that says that genitals determine gender, that genitals and gender are binary, and that these things are eternal and unchanging. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we're hardly the only ones. And so I think it's useful to point out that it's not just intersex and trans people. It is basically the entire non-Western global history <laughs> in which most societies had three or four gender categories. Mm. And that binary gender is an unusual um, way to break up the sex spectrum into just two categories when you look at it in the context of world history. Like, we have the most constricted system of all. It happens to be one that got spread around the planet because colonial happened. Ha right. Colonialism happened. <laughs> really, like, all indigenous cultures <laughs> do the same thing. Mm -hmm. No, and thank you all, for pointing so that out. Many. Yeah. It's not just us. And um, that that ideology also uh, posits that the purpose of sex is reproduction. Mm -hmm. And not every single person who ever had sex for fun, which is most human beings, <laughs> <laughs> but also like animals all the time. Uh, the, the purpose of sexual pleasure is always more than reproduction, mm -hmm. not just for humans. <laughs> You don't have to just talk about bonobos. I mean, calming <laughs> yourself down and having a fun time or bonding with, you know, somebody that you care about or playfulness, all of these things that social species use to bond together and um, even non-social species use to like placate themselves. Those are purposes of sex, <laughs> of sexual pleasure. But we continue to discuss in our science and medicine the idea that the purpose of sex is reproduction. Mm -hmm. um, in order to underline this idea that therefore what really most matters in the world is that you have men who are manly and women who are womanly and binary sex forever shall it wave. <laughs> <laughs> 
So it's really the whole world that actually, in the end, denies this ideology. But in terms of people's recognition of it, um, intersex and trans people are definitely out in the forefront in contemporary America in terms of people seeing, oh, wow, um, not everybody conforms to these expectations I have about the way sex and gender work. Right. We should recognize that people, you know, who are visibly different are the ones who, you know, most have to pay the price of our social change and have to be, you know, out there on the forefront dealing with the, you know, people's resistance to challenges to their beliefs. I guess I would just mention that intersex and trans people have a lot in common and I mean, sort of logically should be doing a lot of advocacy together, mm-hmm. but that hasn't generally worked out so much. Like generally you have trans groups that um, occasionally mention intersexuality, but haven't ever attempted to recruit intersex people to be in them. Mm-hmm. And um, intersex groups that are organized like in a really medical way by condition that have been suspicious of trans people because of a history of people who are trans presenting themselves as intersex to try and get access to things that intersex people hated. Right. (laughs) And if we were to address these tensions, you would hope that intersex and trans people could form a true coalition. Because while there are a lot of intersex people, intersex people are the most closeted people (laughs) that we have in the under the LGBTI sort of spectrum right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. And people are so closeted because they've been trained from a young age mm-hmm. and explicitly made. I mean, if you if your parents knew you were going to, you know, be non-binary or uh, you know or L- whatever you are, they would probably, if they were, you know, th- their tendency would be to try and repress that in you. And most of us um, don't deal with that with regard to many of our identities, like in, under the in queer and trans spectrums. Mm-hmm. But intersex people often deal with it from the moment they're born. Um, And that means that people are really, really, really in the closet. (laughs) And trans people could offer intersex people, like, you know, a helping hand in thinking about, you know, how it's okay to come out. And it's true that people will, you know, have uh, scary thoughts when you want to date them, but that it's possible to be out and do that. And the same way intersex people could, I don't know, we could all, we could form a coalition if we just understood each other better, and I hope people will. <laughs> what do you think are the first steps to getting there? I think that I would start, especially with education in the trans community. Mm-hmm. Now, in, in my own intersex communities, I also do education when it comes to trans issues. But I think that especially a lot of trans people just don't are endosex and really haven't thought about intersex issues at all and only bring up intersex people occasionally to like make a political point of their own and yeah. sort of like using a community instead of like, you know, engaging with it. <laughs> right, right. Like so, trans people yeah. only mentioning intersex people when they're trying to debunk like sex as a binary and yes, then otherwise exactly. not engaging. Right. Yeah. And being like, well, I'd, uh, I, w- I would be happy to work with intersex people if they, you know, came and joined my group, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is like the traditional thing that like lots of all white groups of activists say about, say, people of color, right? Um, you know, or whatever. It's, it's a classic situation in which a more marginalized group of people is told that it's, up, it's on them to come and join right. <laughs> the less marginalized one. And that's a bad dynamic and we should recognize it. Yeah. 
I like the idea of coalition building. I think that we definitely are working towards the same thing, which is just like the abolition of enforced sex and gender. Yes. Autonomy. <laughs> yes. Choice. Yes. Let's finish off with some final thoughts from Pigeon. So you posted this quote on your Facebook page. Uh-huh. Uh, it's from the book Intersex and Identity, The Contested Self by Sharon Preeves. Yeah. And it's a quote from an interview with someone named Sherry. Yeah, Sherry Groveman. Right. So I'm going to read this out loud and then I want it's you to comment quote. on it. It yeah. is a good quote. That's why I have it. I literally <laughs> wrote it out. It's so long. So it's really long. I had to type it out myself <laughs> the other day. It was really long. So the quote is, if doctors really want to do something for their intersex patients, I would say the first thing is to put the intersex person in touch with other people who are intersex. Number two is to see number one. Number three is to see number one. That's it. Doctors think that you're going to kill yourself if you find out the truth. People kill themselves because they feel alone and isolated and helpless. That's why they kill themselves. When doctors don't tell their patients the truth, they're cutting them off from the opportunity of incredible support. So my question to you about that quote is, how have you found support in the intersex community? And does that also speak to why sharing your story is so important to you? I think that quote is perfect. I just shared it to a room of uh, medical researcher people. And and I, I plan on sharing that to every room of doctors I meet and get to speak to in the future. Also, what I'd like to point out is this report that just came out this week called Like Nature Made Me. Um, it's called I Want to Be Like Nature Made Me, Medically Unnecessary Surgeries on Intersex Children in the U.S., which was just put out by Human Rights Watch and Interact. Is that online? Yeah, just was download the whole thing for free on hrw.org cool. if you want uh, it. That will be linked in the episode description. Yeah, and there's a video that if you don't want to read the whole 160-page report, there's a, there's a few-minute video um, as well. Also will be linked. Yeah, So, but I would recommend looking at the recommendations in the back if you want to skip to the, the recommendations. But anyways... What the researchers gathered from this report with intersex people is that a lot of doctors, and I know one in particular who said this to my face, is that they have a fear of referring intersex patients to support groups. And, and as my friend Georgian Davis pointed out, I think it was Georgian recently, they're intersex as well. They pointed out that like, what other con medical condition out there do you hear physicians openly stating that they will they refuse to refer patients to support groups? And in the case of intersex people, physicians say that they don't want their authority to be challenged by like, quote unquote, like crazy radicals at these support groups and these conferences. <laughs> They've point blank told me that's the reason they don't refer to support groups. And I think that's what Sherry in that quote is getting at is like, we don't need medical interventions, like nine times out of 10. There are a few intersex conditions that do. So for instance, if your bladder is on the outside of your body or if urine cannot pass from your body, okay, those are two things like do the surgery necessary, but we never need cosmetic, quote unquote, cosmetic surgery. And what we really need and what every human needs because we're a social species is community and support and we need each other. And so all you really need to do is when you run into an intersex child or a family is refer them to other intersex people and their families so that they can support and grow a network within a community of like-bodied and experienced people. And, and there you go, that's all we really need. And I think that there is a community that got built out of intersex people being like, there's nothing for us, including Bo Laurent, who used to go by Cheryl Chase. She was just like, 
they told me I was the only one, but when I start, when she started telling her story, she found out her cousin or her friend had somebody similar to be an intersex experience. And so she put together ISNA and started like the first intersex society in North America thing. But then out of that grew support groups. There's a group called AISDSD. And I found them when I just found out I was intersex. I started Googling, I found this support group. I wrote my story, I sent it to them. They let me in, it was a Yahoo group back in the day. And then they had a conference. I flew out there, it was in Palo Alto, California. And I met intersex people. Was that the first time? No, the first one was a speaker came to my class right after I found out I was intersex. Her name's Linnell, she's in Chicago, my big sis. She was the first person. But then I went out to the support group, it was like the first time I met like multiple people. And my mom came and and throughout the years I've been going to the, the group. And it's been such a good change lately. It started as just like women who identified as having an intersex condition and they were generally straight women. They didn't really want lesbians to come in, right? Just like we look at the the movement of like LGBTQ, mm -hmm. they didn't want trans people to come mm -hmm. at first, and then they didn't, you know, they wanted people to assimilate. So they were very like so they've suffered so much shame and stigma. They were like, we're just women, okay, we're just normal women. And and when I went to Palo Alto ten years ago, we had to wear stickers with our name tags, and it said women's support group. It didn't say anything about intersex. It just said women's support group, and it was very like hush hush. We're all women here. We all are just women with a condition. And now, like I just went to the the same meeting, like the same conference last weekend in Arizona, and it's there's now men there, there's trans people there, there's children there, there's queer people, there's like all different types of people with all different types of uh, variations. You don't just have to have AIS anymore. It's been a great network of support for me, and I recommend it for anybody that's intersex or parents especially to come to the support group. And if you can't, just join the online version and you can ask questions to parents or to other intersex people. We have Facebook groups, some of them are hidden, but if you just get in contact with any of us, we can plug you into those groups. And, and like Sherry Groveman said in that quote, to start this question off, that's what we need. We need intersex stories, not surgeries. We need support, not surgeries. And it's really that simple. It's, it's amazing that there's this whole industry and all these doctors and the and clinicians and, and clinics to deal with us, but we don't need any of that. We just need like the truth, mm -hmm. honesty, love, and support. That's all we really need. And therapy probably, <laughs> most of us. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thank you to Pigeon and Carrie for sharing your knowledge with me. Gender Blender will be back with another episode in about a month. The music was made by Zaqueer and the graphic design was done by Alex Areza. As always, thanks to Dr. Bada for her supervision on this project. This podcast was made possible by funding from McMaster University and the Renaissance Award.